just want to thank you so much for being with us here today. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for already uh, coming into this room with us in our hearts, in our in our bodies. Uh, we're so grateful to be your temples this morning, and we just ask that you would open our hearts um, to receive what your word has to teach us this morning. And God, I just thank you for my sister, Lauren. Thank you for all of the hard work and hours that she's put into this uh, preparation. Uh, thanks for teaching her. Lord, we trust that you've met with her over these months. And uh, Lord, we look forward to hearing what you what you have in store for us through her today. So I just pray that you'd give her your calm. You'd give her your confidence that you're at work through her. Um, Holy Spirit, just give her a great joy this morning as she teaches us. So. Uh, yeah, we just commit this time to you and I look forward to what you have for us this morning. We love you so much in Jesus name. Amen. Okay. Good morning. It's kind of exciting to be here. I've never been to Bible study here in the daylight. So this is new. I told the nighttime girls I would report back to what you're all doing here in the morning because we don't know. Um, But anyway, I want you to all travel back with me to a very special day. It was October 30th, 2004. A crowd of more than 3 million people filled the streets of Boston, my hometown. There was singing, there was dancing, there was cheering, and the heroes had returned home, riding on duck boats. After defeating their biggest enemy, who had been oppressing us for 86 years. That's like twice, more than twice as long as the Israelites had to wander around the desert. Those enemies, of course, are the New York Yankees. They beat them, and then they went on after that to win the World Series against the St. Louis Cardinals. And for the first time in 19, since 1918, we had won. We were the champions. The crowd roared. Shouts went up for each player as they rolled by or floated by, depending on where you were standing. The heroes had achieved what generations of loyal Red Sox fans had been longing for, and we loved them. Manny hit his doubles. Big Poppy hit his home runs. We cheered. We shouted. It might make more sense for you in this context for me to use that Philadelphia Eagles parade to kind of get you going this morning. But a wise woman once told me you can take a girl out of New England, but you can't take New England out of the girl. So I can't. I just, I can't. Anyway. (laughs) But here we are in 1 Samuel 18 this morning, and Israel's heroes are returning home. And though they aren't riding on duck boats, the people are elated. As we read through chapter 18, we will see God's anointed one, David. He elicits some strong reactions in Israel, and more important, within the king's own family. These reactions are of love and loyalty, envy and hatred. They set the stage of one kingdom falling and another kingdom coming to power. It's a great story. It has all the characters, the ones you love, the ones you hate to love. It has huge battle scenes. A little bit of romance. This would make a great Netflix series. I would probably binge watch it in one weekend. But 
this is more than just a story. This is God's word. This is part of his redemptive story. And once I got over the extremely uncomfortable verses about hundreds of foreskins and started digging into what is here, I was reminded of Sally Lloyd-Jones' subtitle to the Jesus Storybook Bible, Every Story Whispers His Name. And I would say it's a little bit louder than a whisper here in 1 Samuel 18. We're presented with the anointed shepherd king, the son of Jesse from the town of Bethlehem, evoking loyalty in some and enraging others. This points us straight to the descendant of David, the Lord's capital A anointed one, our shepherd king, Jesus Christ. As we look closely at Jonathan, Saul, and others, as we consider their reactions to David, we can examine our own hearts and consider how we react to our Savior and King, Jesus. So last week, we read in chapter 17 that David struck down Goliath. He did this in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, and he drove the Philistine armies back. It was a huge victory for the Israelites. Now all of Israel has heard of David. And overnight, the little shepherd boy from the town of Bethlehem has become the biggest celebrity in Israel. He's gone viral. Everyone knows who he is. Everyone knows what he did. And everyone loves him. In fact, chapter 18 repeats six times that David was loved. And that's not counting the women dancing and singing in the streets. But not everyone is thrilled with this newfound celebrity. This week, we will learn about the tension of a kingdom divided. We will see Saul's envy and fear spiral into sinful, murderous plots after he encounters God's anointed king, David. And we will see that we too must make a decision when we encounter God's anointed king, Jesus. We will either serve him, laying down all we have before him, or we will reject him. We're going to hear a lot about the kingdom as I go through the passage this morning. And that can seem a little abstract to us, especially since we're so far removed historically from the passage. But we know that even on a personal level, we struggle with the idea of allowing someone else to rule our lives. When she was just 13 years old, Louisa May Alcott wrote a poem about how we tend to approach our lives. And here are the first two stanzas. A little kingdom I possess where thoughts and feelings dwell and very hard I find the task of governing it well. For passions, tempts and troubles me, a wayward will misleads and selfishness its shadows cast on all my words and deeds. How can I learn to rule myself, to be the child I should? Honest and brave, nor ever tire of trying to be good. How can I keep a sunny soul to shine along the way? How can I tune my little heart to sweetly sing all day? Spoiler alert, we can't, we can't do it. But the good news is, and we'll see as we move through this passage, that Jesus has graciously brought us into his kingdom, and he wants to rule over our lives for our good. So at this point in first in the first Samuel narrative, 
Saul knows he has been rejected as king. We read in chapter 13 that he acted foolishly and his kingdom will not continue, that the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart because Saul has not kept what the Lord commands. And in chapter 15, Samuel will tell Saul again that he has been rejected as king. Saul knows that his days are numbered. And we know from chapter 16 that David is God's anointed one. He will be the next king, the man after God's own heart. Today, today's chapter reminds us repeatedly that the Lord was with David. And if we remember back to chapter 16, the spirit of the Lord has departed Saul. So the Lord is with David, but the spirit of the Lord has departed from Saul. So chapter 18 picks up right after the conversation at the end of chapter 17. And I'm going to read verses one through five. As soon as he finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. David was loved. The word for love here between David and Jonathan is a semi-political term that alludes to admiration, respect, and affection. Jonathan, who had witnessed David's victory over Goliath, saw how David faced that Philistine with full confidence in the living God. Jonathan himself had demonstrated his trust in the Lord's leading when he was facing enemies back in chapter 14. He recognized David as a kindred spirit, a true believer with whom he could be bound, with whom he could be knit together. One commentator put it this way, the friendship of David and Jonathan is the effect of divine grace, which produces in true believers one heart and one soul and causes them to love each other. Jonathan was the older of the two men, the crown prince and heir to the throne. He made a covenant, an official display of his commitment and loyalty to David. Then he does something that makes no sense at all for someone in his position. He gives David his royal robe and his armor. During this period of history, your clothes and your armor indicated your position. It signified your position in the society. Jonathan is essentially renouncing his position as the prince and his claim to the throne. It was an upside down kind of thing to do. As the crown prince, it would have made much more sense for Jonathan to try to get rid of David. David was a big threat to Jonathan. Some argue at this point, even a bigger threat to Jonathan's position than he was to Saul's. Saul had brought David to live at the palace. Everyone loved David. He was going to marry at least one of David of Jonathan's sisters. 
most princes would have figured out a way to eliminate him in order to hold on to their birthright and their inheritance. Instead, there is this remarkable display of humility and trust on Jonathan's part. As he surrenders to David, all that his culture and world said should be his. The scripture does not tell us that Jonathan was given any kind of message. He didn't have an angel appear to him and say, don't be afraid, Jonathan. This is what the Lord requires of you. No, Jonathan stepped out in faith. He recognized David's heart as one devoted to the living God. He saw David's ability to be the king that his father Saul was not and could not be. And as one commentator put it, he virtually abdicated the throne to a new royal line. He didn't cling to his treasures in fear. He laid them down at David's feet. He surrenders to David, to David's royal authority. Jonathan made himself lesser so David could become greater and formally designated David as his replacement. He yielded his power, his position, with what one writer described as God-dependent humility. Of course, David does not gain the throne until the death of Saul. But when he does, it is with the approval of Jonathan. And that's remarkable. Jonathan helps us see what loving God's anointed looks like. It's a covenantal love, an intense loyalty, and it requires surrender to royal authority. When we encounter Jesus, do we surrender our little kingdoms? Do we loosen our grip on all the things we cling to that we think will give us the safety and status and purpose and lay them down at his feet? Or do we anxiously cling to them? S.G. DeGraff says, only faith makes us willing to be the lesser. Faith causes us to surrender the rights we pretend we have over against the Christ, who is truly Israel's king. Matthew 6.33 says, Seek first his, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. If we look back a few verses in that Matthew passage, we see that these things are all the things we might be anxious about. What will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? The things I'm worrying about all the time. These things will be added to us. Jonathan could have been paralyzed with fear and anxiousness when he thought of all that he could lose by humbling himself and yielding his position in the earthly kingdom. But he trusted in the living God and was seeking his kingdom first. So this first little section ends with David being set over the men of war and having great success. And then we get a description of Saul's reaction to David, which stands in stark contrast to his son, Jonathan. Verses six to nine say, as they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out and all the city. The women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing, to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy and musical instruments, and the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry. 
And this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. A quick side note on these women and their songs. First, I'd like to point out to whom these women are ascribing praise. To Saul and to David. This isn't a worship song they're singing. Well, it is a worship song, but the worship is misdirected to the men and not to the living God of Israel. And secondly, it can be argued that these songs weren't meant to be a dig on Saul. The structure of the song was a common poetic device used in Hebrew poetry, where one term in the first half of the poem would be increased in the second half. Other examples of this structure can be found in the Psalms and in other places throughout the Old Testament. But the structure and poetic integrity of their songs doesn't really matter. Saul, being the proud man that he is, cannot endure to hear anyone praised besides himself. Even his armor bearer, his right-hand man. Whatever benefit David brought to Saul was quickly forgotten. And the text tells us, And Saul eyed David from that day on. Saul's envy and jealousy grows quickly into murderous intentions. In verse 10, we read again about the harmful spirit that rushes upon Saul. Two weeks ago, when we were studying chapter 16, Kim King did a great job teaching us and helping us understand what a harmful spirit from God means. And if you haven't had a chance to listen to that, I encourage you to do so. So here we see it again. The harmful spirit is on Saul. And we're told this time he is in the palace and he's raving. I love that word. He's raving. And David, in service to the king, plays the lyre for him to comfort him. David is not provoking Saul. In fact, he's doing the opposite. The guy that Saul has decided is the biggest threat to him is the only guy in town who can comfort him and serve him in his hour of need. Oh, how sin blinds us from the truth. So there, during this music therapy session, Saul decides he has to get rid of David and comes up with plan A, which is a rather direct approach. He tries killing him by throwing a spear at him. He does this twice. And then verse 12 tells us Saul was afraid of David. Why? Because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So on to plan B. If he can't get him with his own spear, he'll send him out to war and let the Philistines do the job. And here we see what is becoming a familiar refrain. David had success in all of his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. This reminds me of another man from the Old Testament whom God used to save his people, Joseph. He had envious brothers who plotted against him. And we read in Genesis that he had success in all of his undertakings in Egypt. In fact, by the time those envious brothers caught up with him, Joseph was running the entire operation up there in Egypt. And just as in this passage, we see the same phrase repeated over and over again about Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. After the death of their father, Joseph tells his brothers that what they meant as evil against him, God meant for good to save his people. 
Saul can plan and scheme to ruin and kill David, but God's plan is one of redemption. What Saul means for evil, God will use for good to save his people. So while Saul is in the palace raving and plotting, we read in verse 16, all of Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Can you remember back to when the people of Israel first started campaigning for a king like all the other nations? In chapter 8, after all of Samuel's warnings, they insisted they wanted a king who would go out before them and fight their battles. David is out there going out before them, fighting the battles, doing Saul's job for him, the job of the king. Saul's fear and envy are only increasing as he tries yet another twist on his plan. This time, he offers his oldest daughter, Marab, in exchange for some more valiant fighting. And the text gives us a peek into this thought process. Let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. David humbly responds that he lacks the money and the social status to marry the king's daughter. And it seems that Saul agrees as he gives Merab as a bride to another. Now, remember in the last chapter, Saul had promised riches and his daughter's hand to the man who killed Goliath. But it seems like he hadn't any intention on keeping his word at this point. However, it's not too long before he tries again, and this time the younger daughter, Michal, or Michael. This daughter, it says, loves David, and Saul, through his servants, sets the bride price at 100 foreskins of the Philistines. Ew. But anyway, this request, which to me seemed rather disgusting... It almost had me calling Sarah and asking to be assigned a new chapter in 1 Samuel. It wouldn't have seemed so repulsive in Saul's day. This was just a way to keep a tally. In Judges 8.6, there's an example of Egyptians using severed hands to keep count of their conquests. Assyrians were known to use severed heads to keep count of how many soldiers that were um, slain. Philistine males did not practice circumcision like the Israelites. So I guess to make a statement, Saul asks for 100 foreskins of the killed Philistines. And David returns with 200. And there's no doubt now in Saul's mind that the Lord was with David. And I quote verse 29, so Saul was David's enemy continually. God's anointed has provoked has invoked the envy and plotting of Saul. Jesus, God's capital A anointed, invoked envy and plotting as well. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, and several verses later we read in John 11, 53, so from that day on they made plans to put him to death. In Matthew 12, after Jesus healed the man with the withered hand, we read immediately, But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Why? Why were they plotting and conspiring against him? For the same reason Saul wanted to kill David. Listen to Matthew 27, 17 to 18. So when they gathered, Pilate said to them, 
whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who was called the Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Envy. Jonathan recognized the Lord was with David, and we saw his reaction of full surrender. When Saul encounters the Lord's anointed, he digs in and fights for a kingdom that he can never win. There is no winning. The outcome had already been decided. His envy and fear had caused him to spiral into his own eternal demise. Sin is serious, and it's really deceptive. We can compare ourselves to Saul, and outwardly, I think we would all look pretty good in comparison. I haven't thrown a spear at anyone this week. But we know it's not the outward appearance that God considers. Ryan Kelly preached a sermon on this text. And concerning Saul and sin, he had this kind of a long quote. But he said, painful as it is, we should hold up Saul like a mirror. Saul shows us the ugliness of jealousy, anger, bitterness, fear, and self-consumption. Those sins are rarely ugly to me when they're in me and done by me. My jealousy isn't jealousy. It's just disappointment about an injustice or an inequity. My anger isn't sinfully ugly to me. It's just the only possible response to your sin against me. And my fears are so understandable because of all the things that could go wrong or be taken away from me. I'm understanding with my own sin, but I can see it clearly in others. And we can see it clearly in Saul. But of course, it's in us too. Saul as a mirror, it reveals our need for a savior. And the good news is we have one. We aren't left to suffer in the maddening spiral of our sins tormented because of our separation of God from God. Jesus, who is David's greater son, the true shepherd king from Bethlehem has come. And Jesus has won that battle through his death and resurrection. We are not a slave to our sins. Consider 2 Corinthians 5 verses 14 and 17. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, and those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The arrival of David in the palace divided that earthly kingdom. We will see, as we continue our study of 1 Samuel, how David has put father against son. Jesus says in Matthew 10, Do not think I've come to bring, a, to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Encountering God's anointed king requires a response. You can't be neutral. You're either with him or you're against him. 
Matthew 10, 38, 39, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And being part of God's kingdom is the most important thing in all of life. God, by his spirit, knits us together with Jesus, our shepherd and king, who put on flesh and came to pay the price for our ugly sin on the cross. His kingdom is unlike earthly kingdoms. His rule is perfect, just as he is perfect. Last month, we celebrated Advent as a church, like we do every year. And that's a time where we sing many songs about the coming Messiah, the anointed one. One of the most familiar carols we sing is Joy to the World. Listen to this psalm, Psalm 98, which is the basis for many of the words from that carol. And listen carefully for all the descriptions of what Jesus' kingdom is like. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and all who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Steadfast love, the news of salvation through all the earth, joyous songs, rivers clapping their hands, a righteous judge, equity. These are the things that characterize Jesus's perfect kingdom which is spreading throughout the earth even today as people call on his name and will be fully established in the future. And you and I, we get to be a part of this. It is a true reality because the anointed one has anointed us. Paul put it this way, 1 Corinthians 1, 20 to 22. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. The anointed one has anointed us and has given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, give us the grace to have hearts like Jonathan, that we will lay down all we have at the cross of your son, so that we may be called your daughters and enjoy your kingdom forever. Amen.